All right. So we are continuing through our list here, really, at the end of Ephesians chapter 4, where Paul is giving instruction to the members of the Ephesian church on how to live a life that would be worthy of their calling um, and or their vocation, as uh, chapter 4 and verse 1 tells us, that we walk worthy of the vocation wherewith we are called. So he's detailed the calling in chapters 1 through 3, and now he's moved past these. He spent time with the broader gifting of the church, beginning in verse 7 of chapter 4, down through verse 16. And now this last section, really, of the chapter from verse 17 to the end is about this trading of the old man and putting on the new. And um, each person, if they are uh, born again, is a new person. Uh, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, 17, Therefore, if any man be in Christ, or be born again, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away, behold, all things are become new. And so this is a new creation, not a renovation. It's not a coat of paint on the door, but it's a new house. It's a radical change that's only possible by the power of God through his Holy Spirit. We learned about that. And you hath he quickened who are dead in trespasses and sins, um, Ephesians 2, 1. um, That it is a work of God. If it was simply a work of making ourselves a little better, trying to, you know, put some things right and, and use our willpower, then it, that would be more of a renovation, a, a, an attempt to kind of spruce things up, which the world does, it frequently does every New Year's Day um, with a new set of resolutions. And not that they're bad, but that, that this creation that God does that allows us to have this um, new man here is a supernatural work. It is not a natural work. We're not going to get there all by ourselves. And this new work changes us from a self or man-centered universe to a God-centered universe. Everything, instead of things revolving kind of around us, they are revolved then around God. It's a miracle. And each one, uh, each born-again person is a brick, a new brick in the building that God is building with Christ as its head or foundation. Um, all of those things have, to terms have been used in this section or in this, in this book. But there's a tendency because the old man has not been gotten rid of completely in this world. And so we have a temptation to return to sinful ways that put ourselves at the center of the universe rather than God. Um, so in verses 25 through 32, in this section we read, Paul gives us a clearer picture of uh, practical ways that we can put on the new man and put off the old man. What does this look like? Um, it sounds good, we want a new man, but, but what does that new man look like? And so, and what does getting rid of the old man look like? And it, we, we talked about speaking truthfully, in verse 25, right? Put away lying, speak every man truth with his neighbor. And that we, in last week, in verses 26 and 27, we talked about using our anger in a God-honoring fashion. Um, and that it was not sinful simply to be angry, but sin can very quickly come out of anger, so we have to be careful. Now recognize as we're through the going through these these this list that these are not these are commands these are not like nice things to do your best given a shot at we've been called to walk the walk of the Christian life and so Paul again is making it clear what these different aspects look like 
so they're commands. They're, they're to do, do this. This is an exhortation to do. Um, but it's also that they are not given to us in isolation, that they're not given just, okay, um, they're not given this that we need to do in our spare time by ourselves. I'll just do this and, and see if I can work on it. But they, they help us function more beneficially for each other, more efficiently with each other in the church. They are all in, there, there's the broader context of this is the church that we're trying to make healthier. And so these things, each one of us has to practice, but they are practiced with each other. And today's um, example will get at that. Um, they're going to, the, the, these following these things help us to look more like Christ ourselves and interact with each other in the church in a more Christ-exalting way. And that helps us to move, remember, the goal is Christ and Christ-likeness, both for us individually and the church as a whole. So now, in verse, uh, really where we're going to be today is in verse 28. Let me read it. Let him that stole steal no more, but rather let him labor, working with his hands the thing which is good, that he may have to give to him that needeth. So our topic today is work, labor. What do we use our hands for? What do we use our hands for? So something for my for work this week, I was reading uh, stories about how different people responded to the big blizzard they had in Buffalo at the end of last year, just before Christmas. They had over 50 inches of snow, um, they had over 60 to 70 mile per hour winds, and they had blizzard conditions, so less than a quarter mile visibility and 35 mile an hour winds for 36 straight hours. Um, there was a lengthy period during the storm where police, EMS, paramedics could not get to people. They were not responding. They were not um, responding to uh, 911 calls because they could not. They could not see. They could not. There were no roads open. Um, nearly 50 people died many of which were stuck in cars. They had no way to, nowhere to go. Uh, they had, had an emergency at home. They had a medical emergency and no one was able to respond. And so I read a story about some individuals that drove uh, snowmobiles through the city and helped rescue people and bring them to places where they could stay warm. Um, the city and the state have no snowmobiles for this type of a purpose. So it was um, these some individuals that responded and it became an effective way of saving lives. So that's one way people responded. Elsewhere in the city, given that there was a countywide travel ban and stores were largely being closed, uh, there was all kinds of looting in the city. People taking advantage of stores that had no one to defend them or to guard them. So both sets of individuals, both those traveling around in, in snowmobiles and those that were breaking windows and gathering goods for themselves, both of those people were laboring. Both were expending energy. Of course, however, some were stealing while some were helping others that were in need, which gets at kind of what we're looking at in this verse. There's, a, there's an example um, of stealing and, not, and there's an example of just laboring with your hands, that which is good. But before we get into the verse itself, I want to talk a little bit about the biblical precedent for work. Um, from the creation of man, the Bible's clear that labor or work was part of God's original design for mankind. Uh, work was not something that came to us because of the fall. Um, Genesis 2.15, before the fall, it says this, And the Lord took the man, Adam, and put him into the Garden of Eden to dress it and keep it. 
So he had something to do. He was supposed to do something. He was supposed to labor. So it's not part of the curse that came, or work is not part of the curse that came with the fall of Adam and Eve from innocence. Instead, the ground was cursed because of their sin, and then the work would become arduous and until the dust reclaimed the person that was formed from it. Um, in Genesis 3.17, this is the curse. It says, And unto Adam he, God, said, Because thou hast hearkened unto the voice of thy wife, and has eaten of the tree, of which I commanded thee, saying, Thou shalt not eat of it, cursed is the ground for thy sake. In sorrow shalt thou eat of it all the days of thy life. Thorns and also in thistles shall it bring forth to thee. And thou shalt eat the herb of the field. In the sweat of thy face that shalt thou eat bread till thou return unto the ground. For out of it wast thou taken, for dust thou art, and unto dust shalt thou return. So despite this, so the work got this kind of, ugh, it's hard, it's arduous, it's got eventually, we are going to wear out before the ground does. Um, and we will go return to the ground. But despite that added difficulty that the curse brought, work um, is commended throughout the scriptures. So it's not like, well, it's work is cursed now, don't do it. Um, that's not how the scriptures respond. We are still encouraged to work. Proverbs thirteen eleven: wealth gotten by vanity shall be diminished, but he that gathereth by labor shall increase. So that's simply, you work and you have increase. So these, and the Proverbs are, again, not promises. Um, proverbs are um, general rules that tend to work out over, they're, they're just wise sayings that, that uh, teach us things that we should follow after. Labor brings in more. That's what that teaches. Uh, for proverbs 14, 23, In all labor there is profit, but the talk of the lips tendeth only to penury or lack. Um, if you just talk... Um, there's no profit in that. If you need to, you need, to, if, if all you do is talk and never work, you're going to have an empty bank account. Um, and that again is the general rule, but, or, or as he does here, so he's commending work here in Ephesians chapter four, but Paul commends work to the church in Thessalonica in first Thessalonians four four eleven, he says, and that ye study to be quiet and to do your own business and to work with your own hands as we commanded you. So Paul exhorts those at the church to work. In fact, Paul connects working to eating in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. So he says, For even, this is verse 10 of 2 Thessalonians 3, For even when we were with you, this we commanded you, that if any would not work, neither should he eat. For we hear that there are some which walk among you disorderly, working not at all, but are busybodies, now them that are such, we command and exhort by our Lord Jesus Christ that with quietness they work and eat their own bread. But ye, brethren, be not weary in well-doing. So we're supposed to work. If we want to eat, we're supposed to work. We want to uh, increase what we have. We are supposed to work. And so the biblical model is, to, is therefore to work to provide a means for yourself and to avoid being a needy talker or a busybody that accomplishes nothing. And this work is hard. And ultimately, if the Lord tarries, there will come a day when we will cease our labors and return to the ground from whence we came. So the Bible commends work. Work is good. Um, but what type of work are we to do? Well, that's what our verse today in verse 28 lays out for us. A simple outline from this verse uh, of what work should and should not look like. 
So there's four points, and I'll list them, and then we'll go through each one of them. Don't work for evil. Do work for good. Do works that provide means. And then the counterintuitive part, give those means away. Um, And so let's look at each one of these. Don't work for evil. Let him that stole steal no more. Well, uh, stealing was one, or not stealing, was one of the original Ten Commandments. Uh, Easy verse to memorize, right, Ollie? Exodus 20, 15. Thou shalt not steal. Verse 28 um, shows that this command remains in place for Christians today. This isn't like, well, that was an Old Testament law thing. I can steal now. I'm not under the law. That's not true. In fact, habitual stealing is a lifestyle that is, that is associated with leading us to hell. 1 Corinthians 6.10 says, Nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners shall inherit the kingdom of God. So if you're a perpetual thief, you're headed in the wrong direction. And it says, And such were some of you. So it's the Corinthians were, coming, were, were being saved out of that. But ye are washed, ye are sanctified, but ye are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. And so God had saved them out of a lifestyle of thievery, covetousness, drunkenness, reviling, um, extortioning. Um, And so, uh, and and that's just one example. So uh, 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 stealing is not consistent with a life that that has been redeemed, been born again. And the command not to steal also demonstrates to us that God has given each one of us the right to personal property. If we're not allowed to just steal, then what that person has has value because they have it. Um, And so we are not given the go-ahead to steal, and therefore they are given the right to have. So why is that? Why is stealing something that is contrary to God? What is stealing at at its core What's the problem? Is it just simply that you took something that was not yours? What does that show? Well, when we steal, we take God out of the position of being our provider, and we put ourselves in that position instead. Instead of God providing for me, I'm going to provide for me in whatever way I see fit. And while it's true that you can do that, you can provide for yourself without stealing, um, by just disregarding that God is the provider of all things, it's even more obvious when you do steal. In stealing, not only do you put your position above God in terms of your provision or what you get, you also demonstrate your lack of value for the provision that God has given to others. So you don't value God gave that to them. Well, he should have given it to me. There's covetousness or, or um, and, and then you are uh, envy and then you go and steal it you are putting yourself in the position of the powerful one that, that has the ability to take and provide for yourself. So stealing elevates man with a blatant disregard for the commandments of God, and that should not characterize the Christian. And so he says, let him that stole steal no more. And then so let him that stole steal no more means people that have a history of being a thief can be saved. Um, all sinners that are, there's no sinner so bad that he cannot be saved. But in this case, the, the sin is stealing. So, don't work for evil. 
Secondly, do work for good. But rather, so instead, let him labor, working with his hands, the thing which is good. So remember, so this is telling us to to labor for that which is good. Back in Ephesians 2 and verse 10, we are told that we are his, God's, workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto or for good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. So God has good works for us to do. We're supposed to do good works. <laughs> um, so that's pretty straightforward. And now Paul is putting a little bit more substance to, to, to an example of this. An example of this is not to steal, but to labor for that which is good. The opposite of stealing. So how do we know that what we are working with our hands is something that's good? Like I'm going to do something with my hands, I'm going to build something, um, I'm going to craft something, I'm going to work somehow. So how do we, how do we know that which is good? Well, uh, to see an example of, of <clears throat> what I think helps us to define a good work, I'm going to turn to 1 Peter chapter 2, which is page 1705 in Pew Bible. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 11. 1 Peter 2, 11. <clears throat> and this is the Apostle Peter now that says, so this is 1 Peter 2.11. Dear beloved, I beseech you as strangers and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul, having your, good con- having your conversation honest among the Gentiles, that whereas they speak against you as evildoers, they may, by, be, they may, by your good works, which they shall behold, glorify God in the day of visitation. So interestingly, in verse 11, Paul, or Paul Peter um, exhorts these Christians, they are strangers and pilgrims. What are they strangers and pilgrims to? To this world. They have a new a home in heaven that they are waiting for. They are just passing through this earthly world. But he's, he tells them to avoid serving themselves, right? Abstain from fleshly lusts. Don't just serve yourself. And he says it's not just because it's bad for your body. It says it wars against the soul. So don't simply serve your own fleshly lust. That, that works against your soul. But what's amazing is that the good works that you are to do instead, which is performed in the backdrop of the Gentiles, among the Gentiles. So here Gentiles are non-Jews that are not saved. You're just talking about the world around you. That they may see them, behold them, and but they might not even just behold them, but glorify God in the day of visitation. So that they may see your good works and it might cause another to glorify God. That's kind of an amazing thing. Um, that your good works would cause another to glorify God. And we're commanded in 1 Corinthians to ensure that everything we do, we do glorifies God. Right? Whether you eat or drink or whatsoever you do, do all to the glory of God. 1 Corinthians 10.31 <clears throat> So we're supposed to do things that glorify God and then others may witness them and because of their witnessing of them, they may lead to glorifying God. So I'm going to propose a definition of a good work. I'm going to say that a good work is a work done from the heart that seeks to magnify the glory of God that overflows such that others get a glimpse of this glory. 
I'll say it again. A good work is a work that's done from a heart that seeks to magnify the glory of God that overflows such that others get a glimpse of this glory. So others can see it. It's not a private thing. Good works, can you do a good work in private? Yes. But truly a good work is seen by others and it may lead to them glorifying God. So we magnify God's glory and we overflow and it shows to other people. They see God's glory by looking at that good work. We don't do good works to seek our glory, right? We're not going like, I'm going to show you some really good works. Like I'm going to do this many, I'm going to bench press this or whatever, you know, so you can see my good work. Um, You're going to do this so that they see God's glory and get a glimpse of it and leading them to praise God or glorify God for what they have seen. Now, how are we equipped to do these things? How do we know what to do? What's a good word? Like, what is? Okay, there's a definition of it, but which which things fit that? Well, the Bible tells us that the Bible uh, helps us with this in 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. Um, Actually, let's go there. That's page 1677, 1677 in the Pew Bible. 2 Timothy 3. Second Timothy three sixteen and seventeen, great verses on the value of the Bible. Second Timothy three sixteen. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God, and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect or complete, truly furnished unto all good works. You'll be ready to do good works by reading your Bible. That is what it is profitable for. And so that's how, that's what equips us to do good works. So the Bible's clear that if you want to know how to do good works, you need to consult your Bible. If we are to work from a heart that desires to magnify God, well, we have to know who God is and why he's worthy of being made much of. What, where can we learn about that? Well, we can learn about that from the Bible. Uh, if we are to do works that are good, we must have scripture, scripture in, scriptural instruction on works to avoid and works to cling to. What's good and what's bad. Much like we're discussing today. So if we neglect the word, we'll be powerless to know what works to do and what works, uh, what the glory of God looks like. How all the elements, if I'm supposed to glorify God in what I do, such that um, it is seen by others and, and it, it, it accomplishes that end, you're going to need the word of God to know that, how to do those things. You're not going to come up with them simply on your own. Because God's revealed to us what brings him glory. God's revealed to us who he is, so what are the things we are to make much of in this world. And so... We are to labor working with our hands what that thing which is good. And I think we, so we have some idea now on what is good. So thirdly today, do works that provide means. Do works that provide means. We're back in Ephesians 4.28. Let him that stole steal no more, but rather let him labor working with his hands the thing which is good that he may have. I'll just stop there. That he may have. Work that you may have. So it's okay to gain something from our work. Um, we don't have to volunteer for everything. 
Uh, it's consistent with what we've been dis- what we discussed at the beginning of the message that if you're to work in order to eat, then it's okay to expect to get food or something to get food with by working. So there's nothing inherently problematic with receiving wages for for work. Wages for work. <clears throat> But of course, that's in direct contrast to the man who steals. Both men receive something for their labor. However, one works dishonestly, taking something that is not his. The other exchanges labor for wages in an honest fashion. The honest laborer can labor in a way that brings God glory. And therefore, working a job that's not part of vocational ministry or on the mission field, can be a good work. You don't have to be a pastor to be doing a good work. You can be um, whatever, being a, not anything, um, but uh, certainly not something that's sinful. Uh, but you can do many vocations and do good work. Remember that the thief puts himself at the center and says, I am the provider for, I am the ultimate provider for me. But the honest man the quote-unquote honest man, can fall into that same trap. And I'm sure we've all, we've all worked with honest people that made fair wage, but if the glory of God as the ultimate giver is not recognized, and instead as he is exchanged for the man who believes that only by his labors he's able to provide for himself and that it is not dependent upon God, then he denies the worth of God and becomes an idolater of self. I look what I've look what I've created, look what I've done, look how I provided for me. And we have, must never lose sight of God as being our ultimate provider. Philippians 4:19 says, "But my God shall supply all your need according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus." God provides the needs of everyone that has means whether they get them honestly, whether they get them dishonestly, what they have has been, in, in a way, it's all been created by the, the, by the, by the Lord, by God. Um, <clears throat> he owns everything. The earth and its fullness are all his. So it is okay to get means by your work. That is fine. There's nothing wrong with that. So we are, so, so that's our, um, our third heading, again, is to do works that provide means. So we don't do the evil, do the good, you can do works that provide means. And then finally, give those means away. Verse 28 again, let him that stole steal no more, don't do evil, but rather let him labor working with his hands the thing which is good, work for good, that he may have, it's okay to have means by your work, to give to him that needeth to give to him that needeth. Remember that we said a good work is a work done from the heart that seeks to magnify the glory of God that overflows such that others get a glimpse of that glory. How do we do that if it's all in private? It doesn't. If it's all done privately, then that isn't, we're missing out a part of the good work. Because, and so as verse 28 closes, we come to what may be somewhat of a surprise. It would seem right for, for Paul to tell us not to steal, but to honestly work for our wages, and the verse could end there. But when Paul has the end of our wages in mind, he is not thinking of the worker, but rather someone in need, someone else in need. So, um, is there a precedent in Scripture for this? And the encouragement, yes, there is. The encouragement to give from the result of our labors is a teaching found in the Old Testament. 
And just listen to this. I'm going to read um, a section from Deuteronomy 15 that says the following. So this is Deuteronomy 15, 7. It says, If there be among you a poor man of one of thy brethren within any of the gates in the land which the Lord thy God giveth thee, thou shalt not harden your heart, nor shut thine hand from thy poor brother, but thou shalt open thy hand wide unto him, and shalt surely lend him sufficient for his need in that which he wanteth. Beware that there not be a thought in thy wicked heart, saying, The seventh year, the year of release, is at hand, and thine eye be evil against thy poor brother, and thou givest him not, and he cry unto the Lord against thee, and it be sin unto thee. Thou shalt surely give him, and thine heart shall not be grieved when thou givest unto him. Because that for this thing the Lord thy God shall bless thee in all thy works, and in all that thou puttest thy hand unto. For the poor shall never cease from out of the land. Therefore I command thee, saying, Thou shalt open thy hand wide unto thy brother, to thy poor, and to thy needy in thy land. So it's a teaching of the Old Testament to have an open hand towards those that are in need. And in the middle there where it talks about the seventh year, the year of release, every seven years those were in those that had been in servitude, uh, in the land of, in, in the land of, uh, or among the Israelites were to be freed. Um, and so you could work a scheme where, where, well, you're just about to be freed and just, or, and, and also every seventh year, their debts were, were forgiven. Um, so you say, well, you're almost to the point where you're going to be forgiven of those debts. I, you, you, you just wait a little bit. You'll, you'll get taken care of in another couple months. I know you need now, but you're about to be free or you're about to be, be debt free. Um, no, the Bible says, don't, don't do that. Don't, don't look at the situation and say, well, I know you're needy now, but you might not be needy later. So I'm not going to give you anything now. We're to have an open hand. Now, a heart that has its eyes on the needs of others is consistent also with the teaching of Christ in the New Testament. Luke 6.29 says, And unto him that smiteth thee on the one cheek, offer also the other. And him that taketh away thy cloak, forbid not to take thy coat also. Give to every man that asketh of thee, and of him that taketh away thy goods, ask them not again. Paul also uh, frequently asks us to turn our eyes away from ourselves and onto others, especially for people in the church. So, we, And he says that exactly, right? In Galatians 6.10, As we have therefore opportunity, let us do good unto all men, especially unto them who are of the household of faith. So we're to do good to all, especially unto those who are of the household of faith, who are in the church. 1 Corinthians 10.24, Let no man seek his own, but every man another's wealth. But not only the church. It's not only you say, well, okay, I don't mind giving helping out some people that are needing the church, but uh, people in the world that they're not saved, they don't they don't love the Lord. I'm not going to give to them, and that's not that's not the, the heart we should have either. Proverbs twenty. So again, there's a there's a um, there's a reason for that, and it gets back to what we uh, talked about in that that um, verse in First Peter. Proverbs twenty five twenty one twenty two says the following: If thine enemy be hungry, thine enemy be hungry. Give him bread to eat, and if he be thirsty, give him water to drink. Why? For, because, thou shalt heap coals of fire upon his head, and the Lord shall reward thee. Let me read the same type of thing in Romans chapter 12 and verse 20, where it says, Therefore, if thine enemy hunger, feed him. If he thirst, give him drink. For in doing so, thou shalt heap coals of fire on his head. What does that mean, to put coals of fire 
on somebody's head. That doesn't sound very nice. Um, it's just like we saw in First Peter. Our charity to the unbelieving world can be the means that God uses to open their hearts to the gospel message. It may eliminate their negative feelings. It may give them some uncomfort, like, wow, that person I really don't like, he just did that really nice thing for me. He really helped me out. He, lo- he showed love to me. It, keeps cold. it makes them uncomfortable in staying in their I'm your enemy idea. It may make them uncomfortable in their God-dishonoring way. And so it's good to show that love. So we're supposed to be on the lookout for the welfare of others. But what about the fruit of our own work? Isn't that, is that for us? Do, do we earn to keep? Acts 20.35 says, I have showed you all things, how that so laboring ye ought to support the weak and to remember the words of the Lord Jesus and how he said it is more blessed to give than to receive. In our um, Sunday evening study, we're about to come to this in Romans twelve thirteen, distributing to the necessity of saints given to hospitality. And those are marks of love in the church. First Timothy six eighteen, Paul says that they do good, that they be rich in good works, or just this is what we're saying, ready to distribute, willing to communicate. Communicate means to share, not just willing to speak. That they're ready to give, they're ready to give. So we're laboring to support the weak. That is the consistent theme of scripture. Now, clearly from this teaching, we are not to be hoarders of wealth. Um, That would go against what we've been talking about. But the Bible does teach that we should be after, what we should be after is our happiness. Um, Psalm 37.4, delight thyself also in the Lord, and he shall give thee the desires of thine heart. Delight yourself in God. You want to be happy. It is okay to be happy. And so how do we pursue our happiness in a way that's different from the world's pursuit, which frequently focuses on wealth or security or more stuff? Well, if we remember what I just gave you, the words of Christ, where it says in Acts 20.35, it is more blessed to give than to receive. Blessed. What does it mean to be blessed? Well, one way to look at that in, in the scripture is that it's to be happier, to be more blessed. It results in more happiness, more happy to give than to receive. Paul relates this giving heart to something that God loves and teaches as a general rule of sowing and reaping. Um, in 2 Corinthians 9, 6, he's, Paul says, But this I say, he which soweth sparingly shall reap also sparingly. And he which soweth bountifully shall reap also bountifully. Every man, according to, as he purposeth in his heart, let, so let him give, not grudgingly or of necessity. For God loveth a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound toward you, that ye, always having all sufficiency in all things, may abound every good work. So God's going to give you what you need to do good works. You're going to have sufficient. But he loves a cheerful giver. And so the Bible is consistent on this theme of gaining by giving. Gaining by giving. There is he that scattereth. This is Proverbs eleven twenty four. There is here that he that scattereth yet increases. Like, wow, he's giving away, but he keeps getting more. 
And there is, there is that withholded more than his meat, but tendeth to prop, prop poverty. So there's those that give it away and they get more. And then those that say, I'm going to keep it to myself, but somehow they don't ever keep it all. And that verse continues, the liberal soul shall be made fat. And he that watereth shall be watered also himself. And one of the reasons for the difference between, the, or another aspect of the difference between the Christian's view of it and the world's is, the, is the, the perspective of time, temporary versus eternal. Jesus says this to us in John six twenty seven: labor not for the meat which perisheth. So don't spend all your labors, all your focus, all your ambitions in life on things that are going to just rot. For the meat, but for the meat that which endureth unto everlasting life which the Son of Man shall give unto you, for him hath the Father sealed. So, okay, we want to labor for the meat which endureth. Let's think about that. Well, let's continue. This is a similar theme here. Matthew 16, or 619, Christ says, Lay not up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust doth corrupt, and where thieves break through and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust doth corrupt, and where thieves do not break through nor steal. So how does that happen? I'm gonna, how am I going to labor for the fruit or the meat that doesn't perish, this eternal fruit? So here's, this is, this is the bottom line here. When we convert the fruit of our labors into the service of someone needy, either within the body of Christ or out, and then outside of it, we're seeking that the Lord would change the temporal into the eternal. So we have... That, he, that we would use temporal means for eternal gains, right? If, um, and to be clear, you can't buy somebody's way into heaven. You can't say, God, if I give you this much money, do you let this person to heaven? That's, that's certainly not true. But our means can be used as a way to put the word of God in people's hands. And Romans ten seventeen says, faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the word of God. So if you use means to help others see the glory of Christ, then you're taking something temporal money that isn't going to go into the next life and you're turning it into something eternal something that that is the 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 meat that doesn't perish the thing that lasts forever which might be the effect on either a sinner coming to christ or a saint growing in their knowledge of the lord and so that is laboring for that which is good that he may give to them to him that needeth and while we will meet the temporal need, maybe it is a meal, maybe it is you know, shelter, there could be things that are very temporal that we're giving. The goal is, is so that we can demonstrate the glory of God through Christ so that person will then respond in a way that might give eternal fruit. So I want to close this morning with two accounts in the Gospels that directly relate to this and the handling of our wages and our minds towards the ultimate end that for the means that God has blessed us with. So the first one is uh, in Luke 12, Luke 12, 16. And this is going to be page 1456 in the Pew Bible, Luke. So page 1456, Luke 12:16. The Bible is so good that it gives us examples. So I'm going to read... Um, beginning in verse 16 of Luke 12, down to verse 23. And he, this is Jesus, spake a parable unto them, 
saying, The ground of a certain rich man brought forth plentifully. And he thought within himself, saying, What shall I do because I have no room where to bestow my fruits? He has made a lot. And he said, This will I do. I will pull down my barns and build greater, and there will I bestow all my fruits and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, thou hast much goods laid up for many years. Take thine ease, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said unto him, Thou fool, this night thy soul shall be required of thee. Then whose shall those things be which which thou hast provided? So is he that layeth up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. And he said unto his disciples, Therefore I say unto you, Take no thought of for your life what ye shall eat, neither for the body what ye shall put on. The life is more than meat, and the body is more than raiment. And we learn from this parable that, well, one, God may require our lives at any moment. We don't know when. Secondly, we learn that we should have a loose grip on things in this world. The goal should not be to just eat, drink, and be merry. Because what did God expect? God, the third thing we are to learn from this parable is we should be rich first towards God. And that doesn't just mean that we just give all our money to the church. That's not what he's, that's not the, what he's saying. He's saying, your security does not come from the fact that you have big barns that are holding all kinds of stuff. Your security becomes the fact that you know the living and true God and gain your, your foundation and your strength and your life and your future and your hope from him. Don't he the this man had put himself he got he got man in the middle and then all his barns you know he's going to be all taken care of and his life gets taken away whereas if God is at the center God will not get taken away even if all these things even if you lose all your barns like Job the beginning of Job right he's the richest man around and everything gets wiped out and he says the Lord giveth the Lord taketh away blessed be the name of the Lord because of the Lord's stuff all right. The second example, we've actually talked about this not terribly long ago. Let's turn to page uh, or Matthew 19, uh, and this is page 1372, 1372 in the Pew Bible. Matthew 19:16. This is the rich young ruler. Uh, 19:16, and I will. Read down to verse 26. And behold, one came and said unto him, Good master, what good thing shall I do that I may have eternal life? So this person has come to Christ, wants to know how he can have eternal life. And he, that's Christ, said unto him, Why callest thou me good? There is none good but one, that is God. But if thou wilt enter into life, keep the commandments. He saith unto him, Which? Jesus said, Thou shalt do no murder, thou shalt not commit adultery, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not bear false witness. Honor thy father and thy mother, and thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. The young man saith unto him, All these things have I kept from my youth up. What lack I yet? Jesus said unto him, If thou wilt be perfect, go and sell that thou hast, and give to the poor, 
and thou shalt have treasure in heaven and come and follow me. But when the young man heard that saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Then said Jesus unto his disciples, Verily I say unto you that a rich man shall hardly enter into the kingdom of heaven. And again I say unto you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of the needle than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of heaven. When his disciples heard this, they were exceedingly amazed, saying, Who then can be saved? But Jesus beheld them and said unto them, With men this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. So from this parable, we learn a couple of things. First thing that we learn is keeping a set of rules does not get us into heaven. He he kept these things and still is went away sorrowful. Secondly, we learn that riches and spirituality rarely go in hand in hand, just like the other man, right? He was not rich towards God, even though he was rich. Thirdly, and maybe most wonderfully, God is the author of the impossible. And I don't think the only think you can certainly gain from this teaching that it is tougher for someone who has an abundance, say in our nation, where we are all very comfortable, free, you know, even the poor in our nation are, are, are better off than in many countries in this world. That does make it harder to think on the things of the Lord because you think you are, are all satisfied in and of yourself. But I think a, a bigger key there is that there's the broader point that anyone coming to the Lord is an impossibility without God especially the rich person. But with God, all things are possible. Anyone, again, the, the, the vilest sinner, the richest person, anyone can come to the Lord because of God's power. And fourthly, Christ requires that we be willing to give to those who are in need. Does this mean that we all need to today go and sell what we have and give to the poor? Well, I fre- we, can, we frequently ask that question to get ourselves out of the extreme and we miss the point. We could, we could say, no, no, you're not supposed to give everything all the time. That'd be silly. Um, but then the point of the parable would be lost. That a heart of giving that has a loose grip on the things of this world is what Christ is teaching us. And that we say, well, no, no, no. Christ doesn't mean that I can, I can still hold on to my stuff still. We should have a loose grip on it. And that's what his teaching, what the parable teaches. In part, there's other things that it teaches, like the sovereignty of God. So our closing exhortation, just three things to end with here. The first is pretty easy. Don't steal. <laughs> um, <clears throat> and that seems pretty simple. Like, okay, I may, I think I can do that. Um, and, and perhaps none of us has the trouble of going around stealing. Um, but it may be worth meditating for a time on what are the different ways somebody could steal. We could be like the looters in Buffalo and say, boy, I would never do that. That's awful. Or we could simply waste time at work stealing money from our employer. The bottom line is don't use our energy, our labor for sinful activities. Secondly, do work to provide for you and your family. Don't expect that somebody else should provide that for you. Teach your hands to work. Learn to use things to help get the job done. Proverbs 14.4 gives us a picture of this. Where no oxen are, the crib is clean, 
but much increase is by the strength of the ox. So you want a nice clean place to, for your oxen. You want them, you're going you're gonna to set everything up. You know, or better yet, don't even have oxen. You just have a nice crib, clean crib where oxen would go. It's all nice and clean. Don't have to worry about it. Don't have to do any work on that. But you're not going to get much done if you don't have the oxen, right? You're not going to do the work of the field. That's going to cause your crib to be dirty. That's okay. It's okay to get dirty to, do, to accomplish. And that's a good thing. You need tools sometimes to do the job. And thirdly, ask the Lord to incline your hearts to see and seek to satisfy the needs of others. Not necessarily their wants, because they may not have wants that are wholly just and good, but their needs. They are things that they need. Um, Yeah, they need the gospel, they need Christ, but sometimes they do need a meal, or they need clothing, or they need... um, help doing something that they are unable to do. And so that's our teaching today. Let's close in prayer.